0: Kathleen Earle, author of An Early History of the Wyoming Valley.
1: Kathleen Earle is the author of An Early History of the Wyoming Valley. Uh, How did Connecticut end up with a claim in what is now Pennsylvania?
0: Well, it was all the fault of King Charles II of England. He, uh, He gave basically Connecticut all the land from the Atlantic to the Pacific in 1662 the charter of 1662, in a kind of a long rectangle. And then 20 years later, he gave the same land, some of the same land to William Penn, and it overlapped. So Connecticut people um, thought that they owned that land. And in 17, uh, 70, 1762, they started to move there. So almost 100 years later, they started moving there. and. Um, the Delaware Indians were living there under the protection of the Haudenosaunee. And the Pennsylvania people who were living down in Philadelphia, in that part of Pennsylvania, told them that they could use that land as hunting hunting area, the Haudenosaunee. And so when people started moving there from, from Connecticut, the Haudenosaunee went to Pennsylvania and said, hey, I thought no white people were supposed to live there. And they said, well, these aren't you know, our people, they're Connecticut people. And the Delaware upset because they were sort of near the Delaware. and so there was a, a problem which led to the first Wyoming massacre in 1763, a year
1: later. So as the, the Connecticut uh, settlers were coming in, was it a flood or was it just a little bit a few of them at a time?
0: Originally there were 40 actually, and I think that's where 40 fort got its name from the original 40. And um, it was beautiful. you know Connecticut is kind of rocky. And also they were running out of land for their children because as you know, you know, you split up the land among your sons and then they split it among their sons and pretty soon you have no land left. So they were looking forward to the nice Susquehanna River Valley. And they had sent surveyors there in 1754. And then the Susquehanna Company uh, bought it and sold shares. And these guys from Connecticut had bought shares. They got 600 acres for $2. Were
1: they mostly farmers?
0: They were farmers. They were um, carpenters, uh, shoemakers, all kinds of people who just wanted a, a place to live where they could put down their roots and raise their families.
1: And did they did they bring the kind of New England political culture with them? When they they came certainly
0: up? did. They certainly did. Whenever they wanted to make a decision, they would have a town meeting. So, <laughs> so in 1763, when the uh, actually what happened was the first Wyoming massacre, supposedly the Delaware um, destroyed the the whole colony. But there's some controversy about that. Because in April of, of 1763, the uh, which is several months before, several buildings in the Delaware uh, tribal area immolated all at once, were burned up all at once, including the Chief's Hut. And so people blamed the Connecticut Yankees, but they were kind of friendly with them. So it didn't make sense. So some people think that the Pennsylvania people actually did it and blamed the Yankees, the Connecticut Yankees, so the Delaware would, would take care of them. Some people think the Pennsylvania people actually did it.
1: How much archival material is there about you know, the people interacting in, in that area?
0: There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff, but it's mostly old histories, and you know, history is in the eye of the beholder, so it's kind of hard to know what really happened, and I'm sure you run into this all the time with history, that you really don't know what happened unless you were there. And you'll get two different versions of the same story.
1: So as the Connecticut settlers were coming in, were they uh, having meetings with the the Haudenosaunee to deal with land issues or diplomacy between the the colonists and, and the Native Americans? They
0: bought the land from the Haudenosaunee, and so did Pennsylvania. But Haudenosaunee were happy to take it from both. You know, they were kind of, the Haudenosaunee were extremely interesting, extremely powerful. I don't think people realize how powerful that group was and, and still is in some ways culturally. And, um, and they owned all the land from Canada basically down to Pennsylvania, but they also, well they didn't own it, they used it. And they used Pennsylvania for hunting territory.
1: Can you talk about the adoption process?
0: Yeah, I'd love to because uh, Frances Slocum was one of the people adopted. You may know that story. She's from Pennsylvania. And she was abducted um, right after the Wyoming massacre and taken by the Haudenosaunee. And um, her family was desperate. The Slocums were pretty powerful people and really wanted her back. And they spent 59 years looking for her. And when they finally found her, she said, I didn't want you to find me. I was having a great time. I I love it, I love these people, I wanna stay with these people. But they recognized her because of a childhood injury on her finger. And that's happened over and over. There was a woman, Mary Jemison, who was abducted and uh, in, before the revolution. And she wrote a book, or she was interviewed for a book in 1925 in which she said, I was ever like one of them. What they do, what the Haudenosaunee do, they did, and they, they still do to some extent, is they're, they're totally colorblind. They don't care if you're red, green, pink, yellow, whatever. They." They take a person who replaces someone that they've lost, and that person that they adopt becomes that person. So Mary Jemison replaced a brother for two women, and she said, I was, a, I was always treated as their sister, absolutely equal. And she married two chiefs. She had many children, and there's a statue of her up in Letchworth, New York.
1: What would happen if somebody didn't want to be adopted?
0: Well, they chose who they adopted. They would take several people and lead them through the wilderness up to where they were going, and they would kind of check them out as they went along. And what happened with Mary Jemison, at some point, they put moccasins on her feet, and that meant she was adopted. The other ones they would kill or leave in the woods or whatever. They were a a very um, warlike people in some ways, and they, they taught the children how to be warlike, and people object to that now, and they look back, but it was it was their culture. It didn't mean they were nasty people or evil people. That's just part of their culture, and it was totally acceptable.
1: What was the relationship between the Haudenosaunee and the Delaware?
0: They were under the protection of the Haudenosaunee, and they got along very well, except the chief of the Delaware, T.D. Eskang, was kind of proud, and um, the Haudenosaunee are not proud the chiefs of the Haudenosaunee are chosen by the clan mothers. And the clan mothers choose people who are peace-loving and kind and generous people. And they don't like people who go around being proud and tooting their own horn. And T.D. was kind of a proud guy. Whenever they had meetings with the whites, with the Delaware and the Haudenosaunee, T.D. would kind of take over, and they, they kind of didn't like that.
1: Now, Earlier you mentioned the Susquehanna Company, and, and there was also a Delaware Company, Uh, What was the purpose of these companies?
0: Well, they were basically land acquisition companies. They were the rich people back then and some men in the Susquehanna Company, uh, originally it was a vote, one man, one vote. Eventually some New York guys got in there and and changed it so that it was our vote, the three guys, (laughs) you know, about what we're going to do. So they were land acquisition companies. They would buy up land and then sell it, sell shares to people who wanted to move there.
1: Uh, what was the Trenton Decree?
0: Well, that was in 1782, and that was um, after the Yankee-Pennamite War had been going on for quite a while. The, the war kind of started in '69, and the ownership went back and forth. The Trenton Decree said that the uh, Connecticut, the the mass, the Pennsylvania people owned it. About ten years before that, there was um, a decision by the almost U.S. Congress saying that Pennsylvania people could have it. And this went back and forth, but every time there was a decree, it didn't stop the war, it made it worse.
1: Now you mentioned in the book that, that the Delaware were uh, part of a community with the Moravians. Yes, uh, they were, the, were very who were, peaceful. Who were the Moravians and wh- what type of relationship did they have with each other?
0: Well, the Moravians were missionaries and um, they basically Christianized the Delaware. They had a school, they had a, a church with a bell, and that makes it even harder for me to believe that they would just attack their neighbors like that. And they were basically peaceful people and after the, um, the massacre in 1763, they were moved away for their own protection. They came back later but didn't like it and finally ended up in Ohio.
1: How did the, the Connecticut settlers get along with the Moravians?
0: Fine, I guess. I mean, I, I've never read anything about that, but I'm assuming they got along well. They were, you know, one thing people don't realize is that things weren't black and white. I mean, not like they are now even, I don't think. they People knew each other. They were friends with each other. They interacted. I'm sure that the Moravians and the Delaware and the Haudenosaunee all knew different members of all communities and interacted with them during their daily lives because they were everywhere. Everybody, you know, the, the Native people were everywhere. So.
1: Uh, one of the figures you talk about in the book is Zebulon Marcy. who was he?:
0: Well, Zebulon Marcy was one of the early people who moved to the valley. and he's kind of interesting because he was a Yankee. They called themselves Connecticut Yankees. and he's, he built one of the first homes in um, Tunkhannock. and he, then he brought his brother came with him, and uh, he was fairly well off. But when um, Pickering came, Pickering was sent there to straighten out. The battle between the Yankees and the Penamites. He felt he had to take Pickering's side because he was a justice of the peace, and so he was a man of law, even though he was a, a Connecticut Yankee. And so the Yankees took the roof off his house, you know, and accosted his family, even though he was one of theirs. And then when Pickering was kidnapped and being held in the woods, um, he sent messages to his to Marcy's house to get, you know, whatever he needed, which was a pound of chocolate, last week's sermons. the The kidnapping of Timothy Pickering kind of brought the hostilities mostly to an end. So,
1: now, I'd, I'd, we mentioned a little bit about it earlier. Uh, some of the, the, the kind of inciting incidents for creating this war, and he's saying in the book in April, seventeen sixty three. T.D. the leader of the Delaware, was killed. Uh, what happened?
0: Well, 20 houses burst into flames suddenly, and he was in one of them. And that was why I think they had the massacre in, uh, in October of that year.
1: So the massacre was Delaware who were retaliating?
0: Yeah, supposedly, supposedly. But as I said earlier, some people think the Pennsylvanians did it and blamed, you know, and, and got just to cause a stir. Blame the Connecticut people.
1: So how did how did the Connecticut settlers and the Pennsylvanians start fighting each other?
0: Well, they both wanted the same land, and they started kicking each other off the land. And because the Haudenosaunee were so powerful, that was their role model. So they would put on blackface and put feathers in their hair, and do war whoops and go, come charging out of the woods and kill the cattle. Or originally, they chased the cattle away and chase people out of their houses. As time went on, it got more and more violent to where they were eventually killing people and and actually raping the women at the end before it was settled. But it started out that they would just take turns. They were both dressed like native people and charge out of the woods and and destroy each other's homes.
1: Now, how could, because both groups of settlers were subjects of the English king. They, uh, how did they see each other as enemies?
0: Well, they both wanted the land, and the other group didn't want them to have the land. And they both thought they had a right to it, and indeed they both did. They both really had a right to the land given to them by, by King Charles and then paid for with Oden Haudenosaunee. So they really did have a right to it. So,
1: did uh, How did the Pennsylvania government and the Connecticut government handle this growing violence?
0: Yeah, well, the uh, the Connecticut government kind of didn't really want to deal with it. They let the Susquehanna Company deal with it. And they kind of were not sure what to do. They wouldn't do stuff when the settlers asked them to. But the Pennsylvania people were very active. And Governor Hamilton of Pennsylvania kept sending proclamations to the Yankees saying, get off the land, go back to Connecticut. This is not your land. And he sent a, an actual bunch of people under Ashford Clayton in 1763, right after the massacre, to tell them, to read them a proclamation saying, you shall now leave this land. And, and then he said, you, you arrest everybody and burn down the houses. But supposedly when they got there, it had already been done.
1: That's the story. Did either Pennsylvania or Connecticut send in militia to try to stop the violence?
0: No, they, they just let each other handle it.
1: And <laughs> how, how did the Haudenosaunee <laughs> respond with, with these two groups of settlers fighting each other?
0: Um, I don't think they took sides. They, uh, they kind of watched. Until the revolution, they took the side of the Pennamites because a lot of the Pennamites joined the Tories. They called them Pennamites, Pennsylvania people, and the Yankees joined the American side.
1: So the revolution was something that it actually broke down in the, in the local community as well, right?
0: Yes, it did. It carried through. You know, it started before the revolution, went through the revolution, went through Sullivan's march. But during the, uh... I don't know if you want to get into the Second Wyoming Massacre during the American Revolution. The Connecticut people um, signed up. They created a Connecticut militia, the 24th Connecticut militia, and signed up to fight on the American side. And they actually interviewed the Pennsylvania people to make sure they were not Tories. If they were, they kicked them out. And um, Washington sent them all over the country because they needed them in various places leaving the Wyoming Valley kind of unprotected, which is why the Wyoming massacre was able to happen.
1: Uh, Before the revolution started, did the British government in London know about this violence between their own people? in in this?
0: Yeah, but, you know, King Charles was, uh, you know, his father had been kicked out by Cromwell, and he was raised in France. And I think he was kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well. He just kind of partied and didn't pay a lot of attention to what was going on.
1: So uh, we talked a little bit about the revolution and what, what started to happen uh, as that was unfolding. Um, did the the Haudenosaunee? Uh, how how did the Six Nations there break down in terms of what side they were on?
0: Good question. The um, basically the uh, the Tuscarora joined in 1722. The Confederacy was just five tribes, and it was uh, Mohawk. Mohawk was on the eastern door and Seneca was on the western door and then Onondaga were in the middle and Cayuga and, and Oneida were the little brothers between those. And Tuscarora actually emigrated up to the top of the state but they started out at the bottom of the state. And um, during the American Revolution, the British had really worked very hard to win over the Haudenosaunee. And they, uh, for example, Joseph Brant, a very powerful Mohawk, was sent to a British school. And he became so British that he became a Mason. And supposedly during a battle at Cherry Valley, um, one of the people that they had captured was about to be tomahawked, and he inadvertently gave the Mason sign. And Joseph Brant saw it, and so he said, no, no, don't don't hurt him. And the next day he started talking to the guy, and the guy had no idea what the Masons were or anything, but Brant let him go. And when he was let go, he became a Mason. But anyway, during the Revolution, the Mohawks and the uh, everyone but the Tuscarora and the Oneida joined the British, basically because of Brant and because of uh, of missionaries who had worked with the other tribes and brought them around. So they became part of the British force. And when you hear about the American Revolution, you don't realize that, there would be probably 400 British soldiers and 700 Haudenosaunee. You know, when you think about the American Revolution, you imagine a line of red coats and a line of blue coats, but it wasn't like that at all. And the, the Wyoming Massacre had about 1,000 people, and I think 400 of them were Tories and British, and the rest were Haudenosaunee.
1: Uh, well, let's talk about the, that when it happened during the Revolution. What, what was the what was the purpose of the the mission of this force of, Haudenosaunee and British uh, coming into the area?
0: Well, um, the leader of the British uh, had heard that it was undefended because all the men, all the fighting men had been sent to other places. All that was in the Wyoming Valley in 1778 when this occurred were old men and young boys and women. And so he thought this would be a great chance for a victory. So John Butler, his name was. So he came down there with this huge force. And, of course, nobody knew how many of them there were. There were only 375 people on the Connecticut side, the Yankee side. And so they very cleverly sent a few braves down into the valley. And when the Americans would come out and shoot at them, they'd, they'd, they'd retreat. And John Butler had taken over Wintermoot Fort, which was also the home of a guy named Wintermoot. And as they retreated, he burned winter for, even though the guy was a Tory and he was on John Butler's side, to look like they were retreating. And so they kind of lured the Yankees out. Now, they weren't going to, they had a, a town meeting, which they did. And during the town meeting, they decided they would wait for reinforcements. But then this guy named Lazarus Stewart, who was a, kind of a wild, wild Irish Scotchman from Hanover, came in. And he convinced them that they should do it, that they should attack. He said, you guys are cowards, let's, let's do it. And he actually led them out with a, a little Irish band playing St. Patrick's Day in the morning. So these 375 guys left their little fort and went out and were lured out until they came to a big field and then they were surrounded and slaughtered.
1: What happened to, uh, after the massacre, did, did the, the Haudenosaunee and British leave at that point or did they seek to stay?
0: Some of them stayed. Um, they, you know, they, they took uh, possessions. You know, They brought 15 captives back. But there became, there got to be these, uh, these stories about things that had happened which the Haudenosaunee later said were not true and which Haudenosaunee historians have said were not true. One of them is the story of Queen Esther. And there's something called the Queen Esther's Rock at the Wyoming Valley, which has one of those state signs by it saying this is where Queen Esther slaughtered a bunch of soldiers. And the story is that she dressed very garishly and and had eyes all blacked, blacked out and had people brought in and pulled their hair up and smashed their heads in a row on this rock. And um, people just went wild, you know, and, and everybody was very upset about this story. And there were other stories about... Tory brothers killing Yankee brothers, and um, friends who had been friends killing each other, and the Susquehanna running red with blood, and really horrific stories. And they went on and on. And then the Haudenosaunee said, Well, we weren't, we didn't do all that stuff, but if you want us to, we will. So they went and attacked Cherry Valley, and they were horrific in that, in that battle. And they had women there. They said women didn't go on the battles, but after that, for Cherry Valley, they did. So this led to Solomon's march against the Haudenosaunee.
1: Uh, one of the figures you mentioned in the book is John Jenkins. Who was he?
0: John Jenkins was a great guy. He was uh, really um, the one who, who, led the, who put together the kidnapping of Timothy Pickering, he and his brother Stephen. And his parents had come there, uh, one of the early first 40 families. And um, he was one of these charismatic, great guys. John Franklin was the leader of the Yankees, and he was jailed by Pickering. As soon as Pickering came to straighten out this mess, he jailed John Franklin, who was their leader. And Jenkins and a bunch of other guys decided they were going to free their leader by kidnapping uh, Timothy Pickering and trading him. But Jenkins was a very powerful, well, very well-known guy. Interestingly, um, to, a sta- to escape prosecution for the kidnapping, a bunch of the kidnappers went up to New York State. Jenkins went up with him, surveyed property up there. But then he came back, so.
1: Now, another figure you mentioned is somebody that we usually associate with Vermont, and that's Ethan Allen. Oh, uh, yeah. What was he doing in the Wyoming Valley?
0: Well, Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain boys had just kind of been working to, to create Vermont. And he thought maybe he'd help these guys create, they were going to create a, another little state down here for the Connecticut people. So he came marching down there in his regimental costume and, and wooed a bunch of people. And they gave him land. They gave him a few sh- more than a few shares of land. And um, he was in the newspaper because he was quite a charismatic guy, I guess. And he uh, he was kind of blamed for for the Yankees being so violent against the Pennamites for a while, but it was a difficult difficult situation. We don't really know who is to blame.
1: Now you were just talking about uh, uh, Timothy Pickering. Uh, who was he? Where was he from? How did how did he, or what role did he play during the Revolution?
0: Timothy Pickering. Um, by the way, his family came during the, what's called the Great Migration between 1620 and 1640. All the kidnappers' families came at the same time. They were all people who had been you know, respected settlers and whatever, who had come here from long ago and eventually worked their way over to Pennsylvania. And Timothy Pickering's family ended up in Salem, Massachusetts. His, the first Pickering was a carpenter, but they worked their way up. They were very um, ambitious, and they became quite wealthy. And Timothy, um, There are different stories about, about Timothy Pickering, but the biography read, that I read said he was a young man on the make who never made it. He really wanted to be important, and he was kind of a gangly guy who didn't get along with women and didn't get along with people in general. And when he joined the American Revolution, he joined as a bureaucrat, really, worked his way up and to quartermaster. And he didn't get along very well with Washington. Washington didn't like him, partly because he wasn't a very good quartermaster. And <laughs> so um, in 1787, he was sent to the Wyoming Valley to straighten out that mess. And he he came and got kidnapped. And then after that, he went up to Canandaigua, New York, to work as an Indian superintendent. He was pretty good at that. So then he became, uh, I think, War, whatever it is, War Department had, can't remember what you call it.
1: Uh, you quote a historian in your book as saying that he was one of the principal villains of early American history. Why villain?
0: Yeah, the biographer. Well, because he, he wanted his way no matter what, and he would do whatever he needed to do to get what he wanted. It's according to this guy, according to this. I only read, read one biography, and and that's what he said. He said, I wanted to write a book to kind of make him sound better than he was, but I couldn't, I couldn't help it. He is a villain. So, I mean, the fact that he put himself first, above all, he was arrogant. You know, he just trampled people underfoot. Even with the Haudenosaunee, when he was making a treaty with them, he, uh, he was very paternalistic. And he said, you know, they're all alcoholics, so they need a father figure, so they need a superintendent to take care of them, to watch over them. But he came up with what's called the Canandaigua Treaty, and I was up in Canandaigua doing a lecture a few nights ago, and they said uh, that was a good
1: thing, the Canandaigua Treaty. So, so uh, during the Revolution, was the was there still ongoing violence between the Connecticut settlers and the Pennsylvanians?
0: Yeah, yeah, it went right through the Revolution. Yeah, it continued. They they kept going, and it got worse and worse. So, somebody had to do something, I guess.
1: So while that violence was going on, the the British and the Haudenosaunee came down and and launched their attack into the region. What was the Continental Army's response?
0: Well, they decided to destroy the Haudenosaunee. So they appointed John Sullivan to go up through Iroquois country and destroy the Iroquois. And that was in 1779, a year after the Wyoming Massacre and after Cherry Valley. So... He was supposed to go up um, the Susquehanna and destroy all the villages and kill all the people. And then another guy, Clinton, was coming down the Unadilla River, and they were supposed to meet in, um, I guess, Elmira. What's Elmira now? And they did, and by then they had 4,000 people. They had like 400 pack horses and 20 boats and... 200 cattle, and they were going up along these little narrow cliffs to get up there, and cows fell off, and boats sank, and the Haudenosaunee saw they were coming, they are very practical people, they left. There were only a couple of battles, and one of the Haudenosaunee historians wrote a book, and she said, um, a battle, a war against men became a battle against vegetables, because they would destroy cornfields, they found extensive orchards, and all kinds of vegetables. They found log cabins with feather beds among the Haudenosaunee, which they had no idea because no one had ever been there before. And they kept extensive diaries. The soldiers kept diaries, including John Jenkins, who was on the, on the march with him. So uh, it, was, uh, it was not what they had expected. And the Haudenosaunee um, did stand up a few times and have battles with them, but only killed a few men And then they had another battle when they got to the end at Little Beardstown, which is the town of Genesee.
1: Uh, One of the terms you use in the book is great men. What what do you mean by that?
0: Well, that's a term, there were 15 kidnappers and they kept referring to their great men. And so, their great men were people who who had been successful in the area. John Jenkins was one, Ethan Allen was one, John Franklin was one, the guy who was kidnapped. But there were a lot of them who were really in control. They were the bosses, the acknowledged bosses. A lot of them were, were um, officers of the Susquehanna Company, but they were also settlers. And Pickering referred to them as great men. So when, when he was kept in the woods for 19 days and they wouldn't let him go, he said, your great men are not going to save you. You should go. You should let me go. So it was a term that was kind of used to refer to the people who told him what to do.
1: So we've mentioned uh, the kidnapping of Pickering here a few times, so let's go into yeah, that. Um, yeah,
0: I'd really like to go into what, that. What was Pickering,
1: what was he assigned to do in this valley? Was he sent up to be a peacemaker? What was his role there?
0: Yeah, he was assigned to be a peacemaker, and I think he intended to. He he met with a lot of people before he came, and then he he had elections, and unfortunately the Yankees were all elected, and he thought, Well, they got elected because they want to get rid of the Pennsylvania people, so he decided to jail their leader, John Franklin. And um, I'm very interested in the kidnappers because the way I wrote this book is that I was doing a genealogy and I could only find an ancestor named Earl going back to 1795 in Geneva, New York, and for forty years I couldn't find anybody before that. And then somebody said, look in the Wyoming Valley So I called up, or I emailed, the Wyoming Valley Historical Society and said, you got any Earls down there? And she said, let me check my files. Oh yeah, we've got the kidnappers. So (laughs) I said, I'll be right down, which is how I got down here and how I wrote the book. But anyway, the 15 kidnappers um, were kind of put up to this by John Jenkins and his brother. They said, you do it for a frolic, they said, for a frolic, and we'll give you land or we'll give you money. Some of them had half shares of land. Some of them had no land, and they were all young and hungry. And uh, so is that what you asked me? Not exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, well, Pickering was, it was in the area, and uh, he would end up jailing John Franklin. Right. So why? What, 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 was, what was going on there?
0: Well, he had some land, he had bought some land, and he was down in, in, um, I think he was in Philadelphia then. He had bought a couple of shares of land from Connecticut, but he was a Pennsylvanian, and he was um, quartermaster still for the Army, and he wasn't making a lot of money. And so he went to the people in Philadelphia and said, if you send me up there and give me an office so I'll have money, a bunch of offices. Um, I'll straighten this out for you. And so they said, all right. So he went up to Wilkes-Barre to straighten the whole thing out. And that was his, his, his role. He was supposed to come and, and fix the Yankee-Penomite War and end it. And so he was trying to do that. But in jailing the leader of the Yankees, it backfired because they were very, very upset. And so they sent these 15 young guys to kidnap him to trade.
1: Um- when they kidnapped him, did they just show up at his house?
0: They did. They went to Wilkes-Barre in the middle of the night, and he was—he and his wife were sleeping. I guess he was supposedly, he kept a journal. Pickering's journals are very detailed. And so he said he was walking around with his young son in his arms, and there was a knock on the door, and 15 black-faced boys, called them boys, they were young men, with feathers in their hair uh, and knives and guns came in, and and put his hands behind his back and tied a rope to it and took him out and walked him to a local bar where they stopped and said, Do you want to drink? And he said, I told him I don't drink or I told him I would not have any beer. And then they they took him to Tunkanek in the woods and when they got to the river they carried him over the river so he wouldn't get his feet wet and they gave him the best cut of a deer they had they had killed and they they just said, look, just, just let Franklin go, and we'll let you go. And he said, no, I won't. I'm not, that's, that's not right. And he says that in his diaries. But he also says that they were pretty nice to him. They, um, you know, they taught him how to make tea out of bark. You know? and they, they told him stories about farming, how to run a farm, and how to do this, and how to do that. And he wrote it all in his journal. He sent for stuff. They got it from Marcy's house which we mentioned earlier, and um, he basically didn't have it too bad, and he didn't say a lot to them, I guess, but he kind of convinced them eventually that they should let him go.
1: How long did they hold him?
0: Nineteen days.
1: And did they hold him in one place? Or were they Were they in the woods the whole time, or did they actually go to the They were in the
0: woods. Home? They went in cabins occasionally if it was raining, but in the woods mostly, and uh, they tied a chain to his leg at one point, and tied it to a tree, and then at night they put the chain around the leg of a boy so he couldn't get away. And later he could say he was chained because of that. Because later he, he said he was very cruelly treated.
1: Did, uh, did the authorities or whatever resembled the authorities in the region send out somebody to try to find him?
0: Oh, yes, they did. They sent posses out. He was abducted June 26th, and on July 8th, there was a proclamation offering a reward for these people by name. John Jenkins, $300, John Hyde, who was one of the boys, $300, and my poor relatives, $100 each, and a bunch of other of the, the so-called boys, $100 each. And so posses went out, and there was an interaction on July 3rd or 4th where one of the boys was wounded in the hand, and one of the posse was was wounded also. but. They couldn't find them very well. They had a hard time finding them, but they were looking.
1: So, uh, how was he released?
0: They just let him go.
1: Did they just? They just got realized it wasn't going to work, and they.
0: Yep, yep. And he said he'd he'd watch out for them. But then, when he was released, I guess things were already in motion. They already had posse's. They already had a proclamation, so they had a an indictment on September second, where they indicted. Well, first of all, they they captured. Uh, Three of them. Benjamin Earl was one of them, my relative. And uh, Benjamin turned state's witness. He was jailed, and he turned state's witness. But uh, when he did, he, I've read his what he said in his uh, in his indictment, and he said it wasn't really our fault. You know, Jenkins put us up to it. Jenkins, you know, told us that we'd get a, a reward for doing this, and we 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 kind of had to do it, and it wasn't our fault, basically. But nevertheless. He also said what they did and where they went and everything like that. So he was, he was considered a state's witness. And when they came out with the indictment against the kidnappers, his name wasn't on it. And he, he stayed, in, his, his descendants are still around. And I've been communicating with them through ancestry, because they're my relatives. So it's very interesting. They became pretty pretty dominant. He named one of his kids after, after Zira Beach. He named him Beach Earl. Zara Beach was one of the great men, and um, so the indictment said uh, they treated him cruelly. They had guns and knives, and they they chained him, and they they held him in inclement weather, and they insulted him, and and you know all kinds of nasty stuff. And and they they said that Jenkins and a few other guys were guilty of treason. And the boys were guilty of riot, and they should be jailed and fined. And um, so about eight or nine of the boys hightailed it to New York, including two of the Earls, which are my ancestors, which is how John Earl got born in Geneva.
1: How many, uh, even though they fled, did, did any of them get, were they caught by the authorities at some point?
0: Well, two of them, no, the ones upstate New York didn't. I guess, you know, Geneva was, was really, uh, I mean, it it had been Iroquois country, Haudenosaunee country before that, and it was just being sold by another big land company, the Phelps and Gorham Purchase. And so John Jenkins was actually up there surveying part of it with Solomon Earl in 1790. The kidnapping was 1788, it was 1789, John Jenkins and Jonathan Swift, another great man, and Solomon Earl and three other Yankees were up there surveying a lot. So, they all went up, but some of them came back.
1: What happened to John Franklin?
0: John Franklin stayed in Massachusetts. He always insisted that he owned the land. And as time went on, um, the things were kind of resolved Um, around the 1800s. I think Connecticut petitioned to keep their land to, you know, they'd give up the land if they were given land out west. And so they are given land in Ohio. This is not in my book, but um, that's what happened, the Western Reserve. And so one of the Connecticut Yankees who'd gone to New York did come back. John Whitcomb came back and uh, went to where his parents had owned land in the Wyoming Valley. And actually the Earls bought land down here in the 1790s, but they stayed up there. And only, only one family went to Canada, the Kilborns. They went to Canandaigua and then to Canada.
1: So how, how did the violence between the Connecticut settlers and the Pennsylvanians finally come to an end?
0: Well, I guess when they all had their own land, it came to an end. But even while that was in process, they still, you know, were shooting at each other occasionally but not killing each other and, you know, burning their houses. But there was still a lot of enmity there. For quite a while and I imagine eventually it just you know blew away but I'm sure today it's not it's not true you know it's, there's no more enmity but I was giving a speech in Canandaigua uh, last week and a man came up to me and said I'm a penemite <laughs> I said oh okay I'm a Yankee hi <laughs> you know so he knew the whole story
1: so is there still you know you, me- you mentioned that is is there still a sense of some people like we're we're from Connecticut the even at this point, do people still have that consciousness?
0: I really don't know because I don't live here. I don't know what it's like down here at all. I live in Maine, but I grew up in New York and I didn't know anything about this at all until 2016. If you had asked me about the Yankee-Penomite War, I wouldn't have known at all. And so um, I don't know, I'm curious about that. And I would like to know more about that. I think um, people down here really don't know what happened. I've heard from another Earl family who were, I think, Pennamites, you know, wanting to know if they were related. And I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But there was another Earl family in Hanover. Now, Hanover was kind of a Pennamite area. Tonconic and Over was kind of a Yankee area. But I, these people today said, oh, maybe you're related, maybe we're related. And they, they have no idea about the Yankee Pennamite War or any of it. So I started telling them, you know, what happened, and they're like, oh, well, maybe we're related, maybe we're not, I don't know. But, so, I don't know.
1: Well, that area now is is, uh, clearly part of Pennsylvania. At what point did Connecticut relinquish its claims?
0: I think 1810, around 1810, when they were given the land in Ohio. Pretty sure, but I was only interested in up to the move to New York, so I didn't pursue it further, and that isn't even in my book. I only know it because someone asked me that in New York and I researched it.
1: Uh, is there any sense of the origin of the term Penamite?
0: No, I wondered about that myself. Yeah, it's it's kind of a strange term and I don't think a lot of people even know it.
1: Are there if you go up into this area today, are there historic sites that you can visit that you know, are marked
0: for the Yankee Penamite War? I don't Think so. There's, uh, of course, a lot of stuff about the Wyoming Massacre. And um, that's very well researched and very well marked. And um, I haven't seen anything. There's one in Tunkhannock about Sullivan's March. But I haven't seen any. There's one for the burial place of John Franklin in Athens. Those are the only ones I've seen. So someone would know more about that than I do, probably. But, but I think it's kind of been. Forgotten.
1: Well, we've been speaking with Kathleen Earle. She is the author of An Early History of the Wyoming Valley. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you. It was fun. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania cable network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.